Thank you. You, you got, got more, more of those boots, boots around this church, church then. <laughs> it's, it's a problem. problem. <laughs> Thank you so much, Miss Jackie. Jackie. All right, we're, we're in Numbers 23 today. today. If you want to go ahead and turn, turn in that direction. direction. Numbers 23. Start in verse 13 today. So, so, Father, in the name of Jesus, we come, come to you with humble hearts, desperate to know you, desperate to hear your voice. Lord, we're desperate to be a people who you find um, pleasant to you. We want to be pleasing unto you, Lord. May Jesus be exalted in this time. Lord, would you shape us and mold us, make us better disciples. And, Lord, ultimately, we want this region to have an encounter with the kingdom of God. With, with the, the gospel, gospel of Christ, Christ with healing, healing deliverance, with joy. For, for your glory, Lord, and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. And all, and all the saints, saints say amen. 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 William, William Tyndale said this. The Evangelion, that's the Greek word for gospel, Evangelion. He said that it signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings. The gospel makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. Tyndale is obviously remembered for his work in Bible translation. He was frustrated in his day with a lack of biblical knowledge amongst the church, but even particularly amongst the priest. He's quoted saying one time to a priest, he was frustrated with a priest in a hot conversation, and he said, if God spares my life and many years pass, I will cause a boy that drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than you do. He said, the gospel makes a man's heart glad, sing, dance, leap for joy. Yet Tyndale lives in an era of Reformation where he's going to experience great hardship and persecution. Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, lived 100 years before Tyndale, and Wycliffe obviously worked to translate the Latin into English. Wycliffe wasn't martyred, but uh, just a few years after Wycliffe's death, they dug up his body and burned his bones just to uh, kind of say, we didn't do what we should have done, but make sure we get it right. Um, but the Catholic Church did not want the scriptures coming out of Latin and into English. They didn't want the common person to be able to read the Bible, and Tyndale thought that was ridiculous. And, and so, so he, he gives, gives his life, he's, he's condemned, condemned as a heretic for trying to translate our scriptures into English. He ends up spending, a, there's a traitor who kind of gives him up. He spends over a year, year and a half in prison. Ultimately, they strangle him to death and burn him at the stake. Famously, his last words were, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And just three years after uh, Tyndale's, Tyndale's death, the, the king, king of England, England declared that every church must possess an English translation of the scripture. So we see in Tyndale, on one hand, him saying that this gospel produces extreme confidence and joy in the heart of Christians. And then he's going to live a life of hardship and imprisonment. He's going to be strangled to death on the stake and then set ablaze while the testimony of his life is, I am confident and, and filled with joy because of this gospel. And, and the church has always been an enigma to the world in this, that even in spite great hardship and persecution, turn up the fire, the church has still stood with great confidence. 
this, this morning we're going to read Balaam, again, the sorcerer who's going to give another oracle, his second oracle about the people of Israel, and he's essentially going to declare, God is true, his word is effective in power, and these people are fully kept. When we consider the gospel promises, the declarations, the proclamations of the gospel, that any man in Christ is a new creation, Jesus said, no one will pluck you from my hands. Jesus said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The apostle Paul said that we are the very righteousness of Christ. The confidence of the church is that these words are true, emphatically true, forever upheld by the strong power of God. I today am the righteous righteousness of God. You today are seated in heavenly places, and the world could strangle us and light a fire, but it, the world has no ability, the demonic power has no strength to ever quell, squinch, what is that word? To quench, hallelujah. To ever stop the promise of God, that we are the righteousness of Christ for eternity. That, that no, no one snatches us from God's hand. hand. And, and Balaam's, Balaam's kind of encountering this, uh, this God of Israel and his sure promises over his people as he deals with Balak and this attempt to curse the people of God. Tyndale showed us confidence and joy in the gospel because it's true. Numbers 23, verse 13, we'll read through 26. Again, this is the second oracle, right? We read last week that, that Balaam and Balak, they, they sacrificed on seven altars, and then they, uh, Balaam went to try to hear from Yahweh and returns with the first oracle in which Balaam said, these people are wholly devoted to their God. It's beautiful. They shall not be cursed. And today we're going to read the second kind of cycle of sacrifice and oracle. Verse 13, And Balak said to him, him being Balaam, Please come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall only see a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim, the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, offered a bull and ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet with the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth. And, and said, said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed. I cannot revoke it. He has not, he has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of the king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel what God has wrought, what God has done. Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balak said to Balaam, Do not curse them at all and do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell you all that the Lord says? 
that, that I, I must do. do. Now, now remember, remember where we are, again, again in, in this narrative. narrative. Balaam, Balaam has been called by Balak, who is the Moabite king, uh, 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 partnered with the Midianites, has been called to come and to, to curse Israel, the people of God. And so the, the first cycle, remember we've said that, that Balaam is this kind of sorcerer, he's this pagan, uh, kind of witch doctor, seer, and so Balak is concerned that this this people that's living in the desert in the plains of Moab, they are so numerous and blessed. Balak has said, we'll never conquer them in battle. We must curse them. So he calls his secret weapon, which is Balaam the sorcerer. Now, again, we said last week that Israel is strange. They're living in the wilderness, in the desert. There are millions of them, yet they're prospering numerically. The idea of being able to raise your children in the desert to be able to prosper and flourish is wild. And, and the concept here is that Israel, even in a dry place, drinks from the fountain of living water. Israel in a barren land has bread from heaven every morning. Israel's shoes will not wear out. And so not only are these people numerous and victorious in battle, but they're really cared for by their God. The pagan gods do not care for their people in this way, nor do the pagan nations live fully devoted to one God in this way. We said last week that Balaam sees, Balaam, remember we've kind of said, has a doctorate in religion. He knows all the world's religions. But now he looks and sees a monotheistic people devoted to their God and God feeding them with heavenly bread every morning. Even in the desert, they flourish. And so Balak says, we've got to curse them. There's no way to defeat them. So last week we read as, as, as Balaam and Balak go to a high place, a place where Baal's worshipped, and they prepare seven altars, seven bulls, and seven rams. This is some sort of sorcery, divination. And then Balaam, after the, uh, the sacrifices are prepared, says to Balak, the king, stay here by your sacrifices while I go to a secret place to try to hear from the Lord. Balaam says to the Lord, look, I, I went through the ritual. I prepared all the sacrifices. God kind of says, I don't care about your sacrifices, and then begins to give him a word that he must declare. And the word was that Israel is blessed, beautiful in God's sight, and shall not be cursed. So Balak, with all of his great discernment and wisdom, that's what you call sarcasm, okay? says, what we'll do is, we'll go to another high place. So there's something about pagan sorcery here that we don't quite understand, but there's some concept uh, about being able to see the people that you're cursing, and there's also this concept in paganism that gods have certain power over certain regions. So they're kind of regional gods in paganism. And so it seems that Balak thinks that their place of cursing, because they're on this mountain, um, and they're seeing the people from this angle. Some, for some reason, the sorcery is not working. So what they're going to do is they're going to go to a different mountain, now called Pisgah, and they're going to try to curse Israel from this mountain. They're going to try the, the kind of witchcraft, the sorcery from over here. So they repeat the same thing. Seven altars, seven bulls, seven rams, Balak and the Moabite king stand next to the sacrifices, and Balaam turns to go to hear from the Lord in a secret place. When, when Balaam, Balaam returns to Balak, he comes with a second oracle. Now, now we've said that there's three cycles here. Three times they're going to do this with three oracles. And then at the end, Balaam gives us a bonus. 
And so this is the second oracle, and we want to study today this, this prophetic declaration that this pagan seer will pronounce over God's people. Let's look this week at what Balaam says to Balak. First he says, Arise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will not he do it? Or has he spoken, and will not he fulfill it? Now, Balaam has just went to cemetery. It's a, it's a cemetery. That's what we call seminaries today, is cemeteries. That's what Leonard Ravenhill used to say. Balaam has went to seminary, and he has had Theology 101. So Balaam's coming back to Balak now with a theological discourse. He's going to tell Balak. Again, Balaam is the, the, the professor of pagan religions. And, and pagan, pagan gods lie. Pagan, pagan gods, gods manipulate. I mean, read any ancient, ancient literature, uh, uh, ancient Greek literature. The pagan gods uh, are very manipulative. And so Balaam's going to return to Balak with a theological proclamation. He has had some encounter with God where he turns and releases this declaration. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should change his mind. This becomes a foundation of biblical theology. It, it, it was before, but it's a statement that we quote to one another quite a bit. And the, the idea being that it is impossible for our God to utter falsehoods. Hebrews says this in chapter 6, verse 18, when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, the, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with the oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to refuge might have strong encouragement and hold fast to the hope set before us. Notice the words of the author of Hebrews. It is impossible for God to lie. His ways and his purposes are unchangeable, unwavering. His sovereign decree shall not be thwarted. God's word is sure. Then he says, has God spoken and will not fulfill it? So not only is God unable to lie, all of God's promises, all of God's words are true. God never utters a promise that he will not fulfill. And so, so on, on one hand, hand everything he says is true, and everything he says about the future will come to pass. Has he spoken and will not fulfill it? So Isaiah says it this way in chapter 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Now we're talking about the efficacy of God's word. The, the ability, ability to be efficient in accomplishing all that it's purposed. purposed. Now, from now, here, we're really we're really playing with the the the, the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis, Genesis chapter twelve. We said before that this promise is fundamental to the entire scriptures, but it's particularly fundamental to the people of Israel. Paul's going to apply it to us in, in Galatians. But the promise to Abraham was this: Genesis twelve, verse twelve through three. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So, so God, God has spoken, spoken to Abraham, Abraham hundreds of years prior that Abraham's descendants will be uniquely blessed forever. God has spoken to Abraham that the nations of the earth will be blessed in Abraham's seed. So now some six, six seven, I'm trying to do math, math in my head. Uh, almost a thousand years later, not quite that much, Balaam comes with Balak to curse. And the idea here is that the promise of God to Abraham, that his children would be blessed forever, cannot be thwarted. God can't lie, therefore Balaam can't come with sacrifices, right? This is what you do in pagan uh, paganism. You try to manipulate the gods by bringing them food or sacrifices or performing some ritual. And so Balaam has no ability, he has no power to manipulate or bribe the God of Israel into going back on his word to Abraham. God's word to Abraham is sure forever. So the, the first thing we're doing here is a little theology lesson that Balaam's giving us, that God cannot lie, his promises shall be fulfilled, and the promise to Abraham is the foundation of Israel's inheritance that will be carried on to the church. So here we find Balaam and Balak practicing all kinds of manipulative sorcery, and God rising up and declaring, I am not a man that I should change my mind. What I have spoken shall stand. It's interesting, it's interesting at this point to consider, consider that, that Israel, there's, there's no reason to believe that Israel even knows what's going on. Okay, okay so, so we've studied up until this point in Numbers, numbers we've read um, about Moses leading the people of Israel towards the Jordan River to cross the Promised Land. The Promised Land, the, the Canaanite conquest, is really what Israel has her mind set upon. She's encamped in the plains of Moab. But there's no reason to believe that Israel has any idea that the sorcerer from, from thousands of miles, hundreds of miles away, is now standing over a mountain looking at her trying to curse her. So there's this kind of imagery, I don't know if you can, if you could stretch it this far, but it almost feels like spiritual warfare, right? Like Israel's taking care of their children. Moses doesn't seem to be engaged with this idea of cursing at all. Moses is going to the tabernacle and, and taking care of business. Israel's going about um, their daily routines and duties, and there's no reason to believe that they're aware that the greatest sorcerer in all the land is standing above them on a mountaintop trying to curse them. Even when Israel's not watching, even when Israel's unaware of her enemies, God will strike them down. Even when Israel's just going about their day in godliness, taking care of their children and their grandchildren, preparing meals, Moses is just going to the tabernacle to pray. They're not even aware that the sorcerer is trying to pronounce curses. And God says, I've got this. My word will not be thwarted. I am for you and any who stand against you will crumble. I am your God. There's nothing Israel needs to do. There's no performance, no act, no duty that they need to accomplish in order to be kept. They're just kept. They're not even aware of the attack, yet they're kept. How many times in your life has the enemy tried to conquer you or triumph you? You were totally unaware, but you are kept in the strong hands of Jesus. That was free. That wasn't in the notes. 
So, so next, next he's going to say, say Balaam's going to say, God has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. There is no enchantment, no encampment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought, what God has accomplished, what God has done. First, he said, God sees no misfortune in Jacob, no trouble in Israel. God is with them, and the shout of a mighty king is among them. God's strength, God would be the king in their camp, shouting with courage, boldness, and might in the face of their enemies. There's a great shout in the people of Israel. God brought them out of Egypt with signs and wonders, plagues and judgments. He, he ripped Egypt's hand off of Israel. And my favorite line, he is for them like the horns of a wild ox. You imagine, you know, the bull runs, right? And everyone's trying to get out of the way. And that's the idea of the text here is that God is like a wild ox running before Israel and just throwing to the side every person that tries to stand in her way. God is violently, aggressively moving forward with strength and power to move the enemies of Israel out of her path. What is the strength of Israel? God for them like a wild ox. No enchantment, no spells, no magic would ever stop him. And when all is said and done, this is beautiful, beautiful. Balaam says, when it's all said and done, the nations will look and say, look what God has wrought. Look what God has done. The nations will not look and say, Israel is strong. The nations will not look and say, Israel, they're filled with innovative minds and successful thinkers and great military strategists. The nations will look at Israel and say, look what their God has done in their midst. And here we find that God's glory is at stake, that God is concerned with his reputation among the nations. So he loves Israel, and he is going to defend her with the strength of a wild ox so that his name would be glorified among the nations. It's hard not to think that this prophecy has some overlay in the New Testament when you think of Jesus saying, it is finished. You, you think of the New, New Testament, Testament concepts, concepts that, 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 that the, the church, that we're, we're bought by grace, that we are purchased by the shed blood of the Lamb, that, that we don't stand before the nations and say, look what we have accomplished. We stand before the nations and say, look what Christ Jesus has done. Israel's testimony will not be great leadership. Powerful strategies. Israel's, Israel's testimony will be, look what God has done. Finally, Balaam says, behold a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down. She will not lie down and sleep until she has devoured her prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Here, Balaam sees Israel as a, as a lioness picking herself up to pursue her prey. And now Balaam's talking about the conquest, right? Israel's getting ready to go into Canaan to drive out all of God's enemies. And he is saying that Israel will not stop. She will not lie down and rest. 
she will not give up. She will not stop until she has drunk the blood, until she has conquered her prey, until she has taken the promised land. And, and remember, remember again that the Moab, Moab is outside of the promised land. Israel, Israel actually doesn't want uh, the Moab uh, Moabite land or the, the land of the Midianites. Israel's just trying to cross the Jordan. Jericho is going to be the first battle. And Balaam is very much saying here to Balak, if I were you, I would get out of her way. She will conquer all who stand before her. That's a declaration, a prophetic decree of Israel's final success. That she will have the land. Now here, let's do just a little bit of reflection and application and think about how these themes apply to the church today. First, Balaam says God is true and his promises will be fulfilled, period. The blessing of Abraham will stand. Uh, again, Paul's going to say that the seed of Abraham is Christ Jesus. And that all who put their faith in Christ Jesus become heirs of Abraham. Therefore, the promise of God to bless Abraham forever applies to the church, to those who put their trust in Abraham's seed, Christ Jesus. And so that word that the people, uh, Abraham's seed, Abraham's children will be blessed forever, that word applies to us and it's intended to, uh, to deposit in us a great courage and confidence. For, for, for centuries, the, the church has stood with courage and confidence in the face of hell because she is sure that she's blessed in Abraham forever. First, every promise of God towards us in Christ Jesus is yes and amen. No power, no cultural movement, no demonic agenda could ever stop God's words from ringing true over my life for its entirety. You are, if you are in Jesus, you are victorious, you are the righteousness of Christ, you are seated in heavenly places, you are adopted forever, period. Nothing could separate you from the love of God, no height, debt, power, principality, you are his, you are clean, and you are kept, period. So the first thing we remind our hearts as we read this text is that God is true. Let every man be a liar, but our God is true. And what he has spoken to us, this gospel, this gospel of good news, is absolutely, totally true forever, because God is unable to lie. We rest in the gospel. Second, we rest in, again, the efficacy of God's word, or his omnipotent power that is able to accomplish all that he speaks. God has promised us new earth. God has promised us final redemption. God has promised us that the gates of hell won't prevail, that the church will be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel to the nations. God has promised us that the kingdom of God will spread to the four corners of the earth like leaven. Every generation carries this gospel further. God has promised us and his omnipotent power is committed to making sure that his promise is fulfilled. Rest we, we rest, rest 
We rest in the promises of God and his unique ability to accomplish all that he says he will accomplish. The nations will be evangelized. The nations will hear of Jesus, will receive their king. Finally, the, the word of Israel that she will rise up like a lioness and have the promised land. We, we, we so much think of the promised land as being imagery of heaven. Um, I don't know that the New Testament intends for us to read the promised land as being imagery of heaven. Um, because the promised land is uh, filled with fights, right? Like battles. And there, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of people that need to, need to be cut down in the promised land. The promised land doesn't seem to uh, intend to communicate to us so much heaven as much as it does the Christian life and the kingdom. And so we have battles today. We have, we have uh, enemies today. And I think when we think that way, again, remembering that there are giants in the promised land. There are no giants in, in heaven. There are beautiful hammocks next to the beach okay, where I'm going to sleep. It's, it's going to be awesome. awesome. Um, no, no giants, giants <laughs> in heaven. The, the, the idea then becomes that as Israel must carry the promise of God and walk in the power and the strength of the Spirit to drive out her enemies from the land, in the same way the church is, carry, is intended to carry this gospel of peace, this good news of Jesus, and to see the nations bow to our Lord. We're to carry the kingdom to the four corners of the earth. And, and if the word is that Israel is like a lioness ravaging her territory, then I think, I think we could extract, we could see the promises of Jesus to the church. Again, that the gates of hell won't prevail against us. That we will have the nations. That this gospel will be carried to the four corners of the earth. The plans and purposes of God for the church will be fulfilled. The church will rise up as a lioness with great strength and power. And the promise in Revelation is that on, on the last day, the nations, every tribe and every tongue, every ethnicity will declare the glory of Christ Jesus. Paul says, how can they, how can they be saved unless they hear the gospel preached? And so there's this, there's this idea, plain idea, plain prophetic promise in Revelation that the nations of the earth will stand and bless Christ Jesus because the church will have carried the gospel to the four corners of the earth. Now, Nowhere in the scripture do we get this idea that everything's going to be easy, right? Israel's actually going to, to go into the promised land. They're going to have this battle with Jericho, and then they're going to have a little trouble. The people are going to sin. They're going to see some defeat in areas they never thought they'd see defeat. But finally, and ultimately, Israel will be victorious. Our promise is very similar. The idea is not that you'll never struggle financially or you'll, you'll have ultimate total comfort throughout your earthly life. That's not the promise at all. The promise is in the face of discomfort, in the face of persecution, when your culture rejects you, when your family spits on you, you will still be victorious when all is said and done. And your family can reject you, can gossip about you, can belittle you. They may say of you, oh, she's, she was a drunk or she slept around. How could she think of herself as a Christian? And the words of the accuser actually carry zero weight in the courts of heaven. Because when God says you are the righteousness of Christ, God cannot lie. And so again, the idea is not that we're going to have total comfort, but we will have total victory when all is said and done. 
And the promise of God towards the church are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, finally, totally, period. Now again, the idea that we're seeing flesh out is that Israel's going about their business, caring for their children, preparing their meals, and somewhere in the mountains above them, there's some kind of sorcerer trying to curse her. And God says, not for a moment, not for an iota, an ounce, a sliver of time, well, I allow this sorcerer to try to assault your blessing. Your blessing is sure in me. Let's pray. Today, I want to pray today that our church, that our children, and what we instill in the coming generation is this. A holy confidence and joy. We want to see a holy assurance of faith. We to talk a lot about assurance of faith. That God is sure, true. We need, we need a, a holy confidence and joy that leads us to persevere. God cannot lie. His word cannot fail. And he is our strength. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we come to you today as a people devoted to you because of the blood of Christ and the, the cross of Calvary. Lord, and we put our confidence, come on, we put our confidence, our rest today in this truth that Christ Jesus has purchased us redeemed us. We rest today in the eternal truth that we belong to Jesus forever. We thank you today as a church, Lord, that hell can rage, spit, groan, but she has no ability to remove the blessing of God from your people. That we are blessed in Christ forever. That when it all is said and done, we'll see your purposes come to pass. Come on, we thank, we thank you, Jesus, today that in this region we will see souls come to know you. We thank you today that in this region we will see healing and deliverance. In this region we'll see your church active and blessing and serving. We thank you, Lord, that in this region your church will be effective in preaching this gospel. That on the last day when we stand before the throne of heaven, there will be many from this region, from this low country, have heard the gospel of Jesus. And, and received you as Lord. We are, we are confident, confident today. Come on, I want you to say today, God, I'm confident. I'm confident that you love us. I'm confident that you will fulfill all of your purposes in us. And we are confident that hell has no power over us. Come hell or high water, we belong to you. We'll serve you, Jesus. It's in your holy name we pray. And all the saints say amen. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet and we'll move to a time of ministry here.